0: The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, June 2nd. This is The Gist. I'm Zoe Chase sitting in for Mike Pesca. It's a weird day on the Internet. A lot of people seem to be freaking out about the president pulling out of the Paris Agreement. One Pete Souza, Obama White House photographer, keeps posting pictures of Obama and his family on Instagram in these beautiful parts of the world. And then captioning them with lines from, this land is your land. It's a little intense. We're going to address the Paris thing later. But first, there's this one thing that our president talks about in so many contexts, which is that other countries are taking advantage of us. Like, obviously, he talked about this yesterday when he pulled out of the climate deal. Like, China gets to build coal plants. We don't get to. So they're laughing at us. But he talks about this, that other countries are taking advantage of us the most, I think, In terms of straight economics, like what is our economic policy going to be? How are we going to stop getting other countries to take advantage of us? And there's this one point that he hits all the time to say that, which is the trade deficit that the United States has with the rest of the world. So, Jacob, what's the U.S. trade deficit right now?
1: The trade deficit is forty seven point six billion dollars with a B. Uh, Those are the numbers for April, which the federal government released just this morning.
0: Oh, a billion with a B. Jacob Goldstein, Planet Money. Hey, man. Hi.
1: Old time's sake. Word.
0: Uh, so speaking of that, let's call this today's Planet Money Indicator, deep cut from the early days of the Planet Money podcast.
1: The indicator. So we take a number, the indicator, and basically just talk about what it means.
0: Okay. Let's define the terms. What's the trade deficit?
1: So the trade deficit is basically the the difference between how much Stuff, goods, and services we sell to the rest of the world, uh, compared to how much stuff, goods, and services they sell to us. Uh, so, you know, when you say the trade deficit's forty-seven point six billion, that means uh, the rest of the world sold us forty-seven point six billion dollars more than we sold them.
0: Right. So, is it bad to have a trade deficit? Sounds
1: bad, right? It like, sounds, ooh, the deficit, deficit sounds deficit. bad. Uh, no. The short answer is no. Um, and, you know, there is a there is a mirror image of the deficit that nobody ever talks about, and that is the capital surplus. Uh, basically, what that means is... Surplus sounds surplus good. Surplus sounds good, right?
0: Yeah, I love it. It so really doesn't matter
1: much one way or the other. Because what happens is the the flow of goods and services and money coming into and out of the country, that has to balance, right? So mm-hmm. if we have a trade deficit, that means people in America are are buying stuff from other countries. The money, the dollars, the U.S. dollars are going out of the U.S. to people in, say, China who are selling us stuff, right? Mm -hmm. But that money, those U.S. dollars... They don't just sit in China. They come back to the U.S. Uh, in the form of, of investments, you know, of Chinese companies investing in, in U.S. factories and U.S. companies mm-hmm. in the form of loans. Chinese government lending money to U.S. companies, to the U.S. government. So so on net, it's sort of a wash. We buy their stuff. They
0: send us back our money. Right. Like if you have a bunch of dollars, what's the thing to do with those dollars?
1: I mean, you know, there's there's a place where... If you dollars. got dollars, you got to send them to one place.
0: Yeah, basically,
1: so, right? For the most part, you got to send them back to the
0: US. I feel like people think the money disappears, like when we buy the thing and we pay for it in dollars, that that money just evaporates, but like that's not how it works.
1: No, they basically have to send the money back to us either in the form of of direct investments or or loans of buying bonds from the US.
0: I think, you know, especially because the president talks about this a lot. It's like, does it matter? Does the trade deficit matter? Is it just a wash? I mean, it doesn't
1: matter in the way the president seems to suggest, right? It's not like a scoreboard where if you have a trade surplus, you're winning. And if you have a trade deficit, you're losing. It does not matter like that. Having a trade deficit doesn't mean you're losing. It can sort of shift things around in your economy. Um, You know, where you really see that I think most clearly in the U.S. is if you go back 10, 15 years. If you go back to the aughts, that was a period of time when the trade deficit was increasing really rapidly, largely because of our trade with China, because China manufacturing was growing. We were buying more and more from them. And what you saw then was the effect of that was not on net to destroy jobs in the United States but to move them around right so industries in the US that competed with Chinese goods manufacturing those industries lost jobs but other industries that weren't competing with China like say healthcare you know if you're a healthcare worker you're not competing against a healthcare worker in China those mm-hmm. industries gained jobs right so the effect of having a trade deficit paired with a capital surplus it can move jobs around and the reason I look back to the odds to, the to that is because that's when the trade deficit was growing. And that's actually when it peaked. What happened was the trade deficit peaked in like 2006. The financial crisis hit. It came way down. Everything just kind of locked up. And then after the financial crisis, for the last like 10-ish years, the trade deficit has been quite steady. It's been mm-hmm. lower than it was in 2006 and not getting bigger. So I feel like at this point, the trade deficit is just not that big of a deal.
0: Thanks, Jacob.
1: I'm happy to do it, Zoe. (laughs) Um, Good luck with the show, man. I'll
0: talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. That was Jacob Goldstein of NPR's Planet Money podcast, creator of the Planet Money Indicator. Coming up, a celebration of how things are done at the White House these days. But first, I interview Senator Al Franken about his relationship with Jeff Sessions' wife. We touch on it. He's been on this crazy press tour all week that you may have seen because he has this book out that I really liked called Al Franken, Giant of the Senate by Al Franken. It's basically a collection of jokes at the expense of his colleagues that he couldn't make on the Senate floor. But it's also a super interesting book about the way Congress works. It's like nerdy. It's funny. It's easy to understand. Al Franken is currently serving in the government in the middle of one of the craziest moments in U.S. political history. So we're going to ask him about that. Hi, Al Franken.
2: Thank you, Zoe.
0: Okay, so you became famous because of this trap you laid for now Attorney General Jeff Sessions uh, at his confirmation hearing recently. You've also done a couple other
2: things. I didn't lay a trap for him. I uh, Well, people are free to uh, interpret it the way they want. But I asked him one question and he answered a different question <laughs> and uh, gave some uh, misinformation or I didn't answer honestly.
0: I want to ask you about how you figure out what questions to ask, but let me just hear this one first. Can we just hear it for a second?
2: If there is any evidence that anyone affiliated with the Trump campaign communicated with the Russian government in the course of this campaign, what will you do? Senator Franken, I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I did have, not have communications with the Russians, um, and I'm unable to comment on it. Very well. So the
0: first half of that, when you're speaking, how did you prep your questions?
2: Well, actually, this had just come out mm-hmm. um, the, uh, five minutes before, and I really had prefaced the part that you uh, come in on i had said look this just came across the wire essentially uh members of the uh, trump campaign had met with russians and if this is true that's where we started on your thing is uh, mm-hmm. what what would you do meaning would you recuse yourself that's what i was really asking so he gave false testimony under oath to <laughs> the judiciary his confirmation here. that's
0: why it seems like a trap like, did you just get lucky to call him out like that? Well, that's basically? the question, here,
2: and I'll leave it for the listener to decide, because a lot of people have given me credit, at Franken, that he, he's playing three-dimensional chess. Indeed. He's four moves ahead of everybody else. He knew that Sessions wouldn't answer his question. <laughs> that's what we instead, think all the
0: senators are doing.
2: Instead, answer a different question. <laughs> and lie, (laughs) and then he'd have to recuse himself, and then the deputy attorney general, when the right moment came, would appoint a special prosecutor.
0: Yeah, Yeah. is that what you were doing?
2: That's exactly (laughs) what I was doing. (laughs) Look, this is a pattern uh, in this administration uh, of Kushner, uh, Flynn, others who seem to forget conversations they've had with russians and they they don't act like people have nothing to hide
0: yeah kislyak the most forgettable man in town
2: yeah well how could you possibly remember meeting a guy who looks like nikita khrushchev's (laughs) grandson um
0: (laughs) one of my favorite parts in your book is just kind of the relationship between you and your colleagues and i wondered with sessions even you talk about You have a relationship with him, at least your wife maybe knows his wife or whatever.
2: Yeah, there's this thing called the spouse club, and the spouses get together and Mary Sessions, knit a blue baby (laughs) blanket for my grandson, my first grandson, our first grandson. You know, that's a really thoughtful thing. And I served on judiciary with Sessions, and very often when I first was in the Senate, I made a habit of going to every judiciary, I went to every every hearing, and I'd show up early, and I'd stay late, and I'd be prepared, and I'd ask good questions, and very often these were just perfunctory nominations and uh, hearings, and and it would just be me, the chairman, Leahy, and uh, Sessions, the ranking member, the three of us were there, and he, he kind of liked the cut of my jib because I asked good questions, and then a mm-hmm. uh, few weeks in, Leahy couldn't show up because he had an appropriations thing he had to go to, so he asked me to chair, mm-hmm. and I got there early. I'm sitting in the, the chairman's chair with the gavel, and he comes in, he goes, well, a meteoric rise, and I said, and well deserved, and he <laughs> laughed, and I tend to like people to laugh at anything I say.
0: That's very sweet, both the baby points. <laughs> Ed, his joke. Yeah,
2: and and so we had a friendly relationship, uh, and but that Didn't mean I wasn't tough on him in my questioning. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I met with him uh, the day before. We had a courtesy meeting, and uh, I said, eat your Wheaties. You did? Yeah.
0: One thing I was wondering is, like, I feel like when I look at what's happening in basically the White House and the House— You know, the other the other half of Congress, the House is like a crazy dysfunctional family. Like you can hear glass breaking and like the Freedom Caucus rioting. The White House can't seem to keep itself totally under control either. You can see the conflicts that they're having pretty clearly. But the Senate seems kind of cool. It's a little quiet. And I just wonder if you can tell me, like, what is the mood like in the Senate right now?
2: Well, there is some tension. I mean, right now, healthcare is the most important item in front of us. I believe, yeah. And uh, the bill that was passed out of the house is atrocious. It's a cruel bill. Uh, I'm co-chair of the rural health caucus with Pat Roberts, Republican of Kansas. I go around rural Minnesota all the time, and people are freaked out about this because it's going to hurt people.
0: Can you tell me though, as far as the healthcare bill? legislatively what's your strategy in the senate are all of you guys like this house bill is disgusting we're just going to drop it behind the radiator and forget about it what's the plan
2: well so you're asking about the process uh, in the senate yeah unfortunately right now it's 13 republicans behind closed doors that the majority leader assigned to do this that's not the way we should be doing this. We should be doing this in a bipartisan way. We should be having hearings. We should be doing this out in the open. That's what happened with the Affordable Care Act. There were 40 or so hearings on on these things, and it was done in the open.
0: That's not happening. Like, the Democrats are being cut out of the process, and there's 13 guys in a room, and you don't know what's happening
2: in the room. Exactly. And, and you're I mean, I'm eight. not sure they know what's happening. And, and as I was saying, they have been so... Uh, about using Obamacare as a political issue that I think they did not expect Trump to win. They expected Hillary to win, and I think they expected just to continue using Obamacare as a political uh, tool and uh, really did not think about what they wanted to do (laughs) if if they could write a health care bill. And I really do believe that many of my colleagues – my Republican colleagues have not given a lot of thought to healthcare and how it actually works. And that's evident from the conversations I have.
0: Like I said, you know, this thing I like in the book is your relationship with your colleagues, including the Republicans. Like you were just saying, you chair a committee with Pat Roberts. And like he's. Well, a- it's, yeah,
2: we're co chair of a caucus. Co chair so, of a yeah, caucus. Yeah. Oh, Pat is, uh, you know, he's very, very conservative. I-, I get along with him great. We've bonded over. He's very funny. Uh, we've bonded over. I Jack- was
0: shocked to read that. I didn't, I didn't oh, no, think of no, him he's, as a funny guy.
2: Oh, yes, he is. He's very And, and he's he loves Jack Benny. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, I loved Jack Benny. And very often when I see him, I go, may I help you? <laughs> and that was a character actor on the yeah. Benny show, Frank Nelson, where Jack Benny would walk up to a counter the guy would turn around and go, may I help you? And it was Frank Nelson. And and Benny would always go, you again. And so we do that a lot. And uh, people don't know what we're talking about or under my age, It's Franken and
0: Robert's inside joke, which is so weird to imagine. (laughs) That's what I I like so much is being able to see this stuff. I will say, you know, obviously uh, Ted Cruz is not your favorite
2: he's, guy to work he's with? He's sort of the exception that proves the rule in the Senate. He's violated many of the norms of the Senate, and he's not very popular. He's the toxic co-worker, the guy who microwaves fish in the, in the lunchroom.
0: So in this book, it's kind of like you saved up a bunch of jokes that you felt like you couldn't say on the Senate floor, or perhaps in your sort of...
2: You know, I mean that's a small part of this. Actually, but
0: it shows up though. Yeah, like, it, it shows you know, up. it's a consistent theme, chapter after. Chapter. Well, there are
2: jokes that I couldn't say. I mean, I talk about my my poor staff. Yeah, <laughs> I remember when uh, the marriage uh, equality uh, in the Supreme Court when they they ruled to make equal marriage uh, marriage equality the law of the land. So I wanted to release a thing saying, uh, you know, Senator Franken is very happy that the Supreme Court you know, on this day, you know, has made marriage marriage equality real. Uh, but Senator Franken thinks that Justice Scalia's dissent was very gay. <laughs> <laughs> gay is dissent. My team goes, no, you can't. <laughs> you can't do that. And I go, I've been reelected <laughs> <But> like- <laughs> by a wide margin. And. It would be
0: so fun for us, (laughs) for the reporters, if you would just do that. That was something I wondered. Like, there's a great example where you describe kind of the equivalent of microwaving fish in the office, which is when Ted Cruz is, uh, I don't know, you guys are arguing, it's over the assault weapons ban. You have this line in the book that you didn't say out loud that would have been pretty amazing if you had.
2: Yeah, I mean, and I knew not to do it. He gave this patronizing lecture to Dianne Feinstein. And it was, may I remind the senior senator from California that the Bill of Rights is foundational in our Constitution, that the Founders, blah, 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 Mm -hmm. and that the Second Amendment is in this Bill of Rights and the First Amendment is as well. And if she would limit... Guns that are covered by the Second Amendment. I, may I suggest that she would also limit which books are covered by the First Amendment? And I would ask the senior senator what books she would deem not coverable by the First Amendment. And and then it was this long lecture, and she came back at him, great, in a way that should have just shut him up, and he just um. Might I point out that the senior center did not ask my question, answer my question, which is, which books she would deem not coverable by the First Amendment? And I wanted to say, uh, I know a book that wouldn't be covered: uh, Ted Cruz is a pedophile. That you know, because that would be libelous. Yeah. Unless, of course, you are a pedophile, and and that would have to be kind of proven, I would think. And uh, we don't know, but I'm. That's an example. and That's so dark. And I, yeah, and I didn't say it because of that. And my, I think my staff would have all bolted.
0: Can you just explain why you can't say stuff like that? Like why you can't make those kind of jokes? Because it does seem like right now with the way the president is tweeting and like the congressman, you know, the your, this new congressman knocking out a reporter for asking about the CBO score of the health
2: bill. We he didn't knock him out, to be fair.
0: That is fair. That is fair.
2: <laughs> he he right. just simply body slammed him.
0: He, yeah. He knocked him down, but not out.
2: Yeah. Right.
0: So it, it just seems like you
2: could be making
0: some of these awful Well, this checks. was also, that
2: was in my first term. And, right. and in the first term, I was very, very studious about being uh showing people in Minnesota that I was a serious person and that I was a workhorse because during the campaign the camp first campaign was very ugly yeah and it had taken stuff I had written in comedy and said in as a comedian put it through this 15 million dollar machine uh, called the dehumorizer. And that would it was uh, had some Israeli technology that oh, takes wow. it yes it it uh, decontextualizes humor <laughs> and when it takes all the irony out, it takes the uh, context, it takes hyperbole out, it take, takes everything out and leaves you with something that you can attack. It was hard for me to, to,
0: to read about that, about the dehumorizer, just as a reporter, because I understand what you went through in that first campaign. You're a comedian and you're trying to prove that like, you're not just out here to troll the Senate or be a funny guy. Like you have serious ideas and you want people to vote for you based on your ideas. But it was a little hard to see the possibility of comedy ev- in the Senate chamber evaporate.
2: Yeah. I think it's back. I mean, I'm going to be a workhorse with the sense of you. I, yeah. I, uh, you know, I, and, and it, ha- I have loosened up and I am, I, yes. I am. Able I mean, to you're do saying that. this stuff now. Yeah.
0: so, You're a Democratic senator, so what's the plan? Like, There are a lot of people, I think, (laughs) who listen to this show who want to know what the plan is. Like, I know you don't like Donald Trump. I know a lot of Democrats in the Senate don't like Donald Trump, but what's next for the party? What's the message besides you not liking Donald Trump?
2: I think the message is that to a lot of the people who voted for Donald Trump is that he does not care about you when you're— doing an $880 billion cut to Medicaid, the people it's going to hurt are a lot a lot of people that voted for him. And the people it's going to help the $900 billion tax cut is just going to help people who make over $250,000 more. I mean, that's basically who gets this tax cut and it's going to help the, the super rich. Part of our message is that he's not on your side. We are. And we are about... Creating jobs, about creating high quality jobs, we are about uh, making sure everybody has opportunity.
0: Can you? I'm just going to ask you again. Can you sum that up? And the reason I ask is because, you know, I read the the critique basically of the Hillary Clinton campaign shattered, and one of the things that I thought was interesting about it that I've been thinking about was they talked about their critique this is the politico reporters kind of takeaway that basically the the clinton campaign didn't have like a concise message like you could just think trump and you knew he was basically like america first no wars no trade no immigrants like he just it was like you could just picture it right away and with bernie it was kind of the same like bernie sanders like no more millionaires and billionaires and I don't yeah. want to relitigate the Clinton campaign. Like, I'm not interested in sure. that. But I feel like I want to hear a concise message out of the Democrats.
2: That's one of our problems. So, you know, all our bumper stickers end with continued on next bumper sticker. Yeah. There's a reason for government, and it is to make sure that there is security and there's opportunity and that we all do better when we all do better.
0: Okay, there you got that at the end. I could see that. We being all a bumper do, sticker.
2: We all do better when we all do better. Paul Wellstone said that. That's right. Yep. And I dedicate the the book to Paul and Sheila.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Senator. It's fun to talk to you.
2: T- fun to talk to you, Zoe.
0: The book is Al Franken, Giant of the Senate, by Al Franken and now as they say the spiel when big things happen in the world which is every day there is one place i can go to work out my feelings about it today is no different I'm uh, just hoping you can clear this up once and for all. Yes or no, does the president believe that climate change is real and a threat to the United States? You, you know what's
1: interesting about, all the discussions we had through the last several weeks have been focused on one singular issue. Is Paris good or not for this country? That's the discussions I've had with the president.
0: Now, the president has been threatening to take away the White House press briefing. And some reporters are like, why not? It's just lies Anyway. And so this is a full-throated defense of the imperfect press briefing that we have. And there is no better example than the one that we had today. I have loved the White House press briefing from Spicer's very first one. Okay, since the second one. The first one, he took no questions, yelled, and then ran out. But the question and answer part of the press briefing is like The Bachelorette. It's all these reporters with different characters and personalities like, Sean, Sean, go ahead, Trey. Fuck you. Fuck you, too, Trey. Oh, a follow up?
3: Just a quick question as it relates to to climate change. The very simple definition of climate change is a change in the Earth's weather patterns. Does the president share the EPA administrator's thoughts on this topic? And why has the administration uh, sort of backed away from using the words climate change? I don't, I have not, as I mentioned, I have not had an opportunity to specifically talk to the president about that.
0: This is really raw. The reporters are really frustrated. It's a super important question. It's a basic fundamental question about truth and values. And the president refuses to answer it. And the press secretary is powerless. And it's really gripping because it really matters. It's not like the White House press briefing is some secret discovery of mine. Everybody knows about it. Lots of us know the feeling of like, ooh, news has just broken at the end of the day on Friday. I can't wait till Monday. The reporters have all weekend to get their questions ready. And Spicer is an endearing creature to me. I work at This American Life. We value genuine, intense feelings. He may be lying sometimes, but he wears his heart on his sleeve. And when he speaks, you can feel what he's feeling. Like this is from a few months ago.
3: No, I just, uh, you're, I don't, it's interesting. I mean, th- this is very clearly worded. And yet somehow you're asking me how to interpret that in, in any other way than literally reading plain English.
2: Interpret okay. something else for me. Does the
0: president still believe that climate change is a hoax? I love today's briefing. It was Scott Pruitt, head of the EPA and Spicy. Pruitt was up there for less than 15 minutes. He was asked if the president believed in man-made climate change. He was asked the question, I counted, Five times.
3: Sir, I'd like to go back to the first question that was asked that you didn't answer. Does the president believe uh, today that climate change is a hoax? That's something, of course, he said in the campaign. When the pool was up in the Oval Office with him a couple days ago, he refused to answer. So I'm wondering if you can speak for him. You know, I did answer
1: the question because I said the discussions the president and I have had over the last several weeks have been focused on one key issue. Is Paris good or bad for this country?
0: Then Pruitt had to leave. That's all I've got. I've got to head to the
1: airport. Thank you
0: very much.
3: The Thank you. Thank
0: you. You your Why
1: did you celebrate at a French restaurant? Thank you. Was that a symbolic gesture?
0: A reporter just asked if the reason that Pruitt had dinner at a French restaurant last night was a symbolic celebratory gesture. And then a Breitbart reporter in the room tweeted that Pruitt winked at them in response to that question. The whole thing was very illuminating. It has not been publicly confirmed by a single reporter on whether the president believes that man-made climate change is real. We know he used to think it was before 2009 and then started saying publicly it wasn't after 2011. That's from Dylan Matthews at Vox. But we don't know what he thinks now that he's the president in charge of environmental policy. That's not what I want to talk about, though. I want to talk about the room where it happens. Lately, it seems like people aren't appreciating that time of day when we gather around the press briefing. Like just yesterday, there was this other piece in Vox. The headline was, what is the point of press briefings anymore? What is the point of you, Vox, with paragraphs like this one? It is hard to see what value there is in watching Sean Spicer kick up sand for half an hour At Tuesday's briefing, for instance, Spicer alternated between denying reports that Jared Kushner sought to conduct secret back-channel communications with the Russians and defending back-channels as a legitimate diplomatic technique. I don't agree with that. This presupposes there's a plate of straight answers somewhere that you could order up instead. That does not exist. The best thing that happens is that reporters guide me toward what's already known and on the record and what is not yet. Like the climate change thing today, like that's still an open question. And that is now established on the record that that is an open question. And you can tell by watching the press briefings what the White House has planned for, like what is all the way thought out and then what is not because of the way Sean Spicer wears his heart on his sleeve. Like this right here is a pretty long clip from back when uh, the president announced the travel ban, the executive order. It's a long clip. But if you stick with it, it's worth it. Kristen. Sean,
2: thanks. You're saying it's not a ban. This was President Trump's tweet yesterday.
1: If the ban were announced with a one-week notice, the bad would rush into our country during that week. So he says it's a ban. I mean, he's
3: band. using the, the words that the media is using. But at the end of the day, it can't. Oh, no. Hold on, hold on, hold on. It can't be. It can't be. Oh, Jonathan, thanks. I'll, I'll let Kristen talk. It can't be a ban if you're letting a million people in. If 325,000 people from another country can't come in, that is by nature not a ban. I understand your point. It is extreme. The president himself called it a ban. I understand. Is he confused or are you confused? No, I'm not confused. I think that the words that are being used to describe it are derived from what the media is calling this. He's been very clear that it is extreme
0: vetting. I know that what Spicer is saying here is not as satisfying as a straight answer. But remember, the straight answer doesn't exist. There's not another option. Sean Spicer's palpable frustration, that is the closest straight answer that we get. Here's another unpopular opinion to leave you with on this Friday afternoon. I like the president's tweets. I really, really like them. Not just because they're entertaining, though they are, which is not a crime to be entertaining. Though deleting them, I think, is a crime, and he does seem to be doing that. Um, But anyway, I like the unvarnished look at the president's brain that they provide. Like, I believe our president cares about himself, He cares about the way the media portrays him and perceives him. He cares about any slight from a foreign leader. I know more about what upsets this president than I've known about any president ever. And it's something that I want to know. Now I have it. The Washington Post just ran a story in the style section yesterday with this headline. A beltway tradition is on life support. Will we miss the White House briefing if it dies? And Paul Farh, he's the media reporter at The Post. He answers the question correctly. Yes, we will. And then he gives this little history of the White House press briefing, which I didn't know, is this. He writes, journalists have reported from White House grounds on a regular basis since the 1880s, first in 1881, when President James A. Garfield was shot by an assassin and lingered near death for more than two months So then Grover Cleveland's private secretary, Daniel Lamont, takes over and he has a White House aide regularly answer questions. Cleveland didn't want to answer questions anymore himself because when he was on a honeymoon in 1886 with his 21-year-old wife, reporters hounded him. Apparently, this wife had been his legal ward since she was 11. So that's how the White House press briefing got started. The unscriptedness of this White House is not virtuous. You already know that. But the way to deal with it is not to take away the unscripted parts that happen in public. The unscripted moments are what happens between the reporters and a representative of the White House. The White House doesn't know what they're going to ask, and that is important. There is only one place where that happens in real time, and that's that room. Like, there's no way that Spicer was prepared for this one moment a while ago with um, Charlie Spearing of Breitbart Spicer was doing this slideshow for the reporters of the new border fence going up, and the Breitbart guy straight up told him that Trump's base is not going to accept this wall that you're proposing.
3: To answer the question, it is currently being built in NACO, Arizona, Sunland Park, New Mexico, and we are going to be starting to do this in San Diego, El Paso, and Rio Grande Valley. So you're basically just telling supporters, the president's supporters, to be satisfied with this existing tough guy fencing until he's ready to build a wall. No, what I'm telling anybody is that the president said he was going to build a wall and he's doing it. He's using the best technology and what the Department of Homeland Security under Secretary John Kelly says is the most effective way to keep people out, to stop drugs, to stop cartels, to stop human trafficking and to prevent illegal immigration. That's what I'm telling you.
0: Spicer says dumb, crazy things like concentration centers instead of gas chambers. He says things that may actually be deeply fucked up, like Hitler never gassed his own people as though Jews weren't Hitler's own people. But weirdly, even the people who hated Spicer the most seemed like they really felt for him when there were those stories last weekend that came out that said that Spicer didn't get to meet the pope. Like, I personally know some communist Catholics who are like, nope, that's not fair. That's not cool. Sean Spicer has been working hard he should get to meet the Pope while he's doing this thankless job. Given that you and Administrator Proulx can't say where the president stands on climate change, does this mean that members of this administration helped the president make this decision to withdraw from the Paris Accord without knowing where the president stands, without knowing whether or not he thinks climate change is real? Uh,
3: My understanding is that individuals gave the president advice on the deal at hand, and he made a decision uh, on what was best for the country and our people.
0: That's it for today's show. Chris Barube and Mary Wilson produce the gist. Steve Lichte is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. I have a message for the host of this podcast, Mike Pesca, Forsen at Hike Olim you Uwabit. And thank you for listening.